When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Our World Cup series on the 90 Min podcast feed. How's it all going? Welcome back. Uh, we've got another cracking World Cup to look back on and it's the 2002 World Cup hosted in Japan and Korea. Uh, I was 12 years old at the time, but yeah, good World Cup, I guess. Uh, apart from the weird times, I guess. Was that a problem? Uh, I enjoyed that World Cup because I was a kid, but when yeah. you look back on it now... It's remembered as one of the worst, if not the worst, World Cup tournament <laughs> in history. Is it actually? Um, I think it is. People look back on the, mainly because of the refereeing decisions that we'll get into. Um, but it was also the first example of maybe political decisions influencing where the World Cup went. Because it was the first time it had gone to the Asian market. And I didn't really know anything about it when I was a kid. But doing a bit of reading up before doing this podcast, yeah, there's controversy attached to it. Interesting. Uh, joining us is uh, Toby Cudworth. How are you? I'm good, mate. Sorry, I just jumped in no, before, no, you, uh, before you introduced I, me. I kind yeah, of very well. I was thinking how to start the show and kind of just thought, just jump straight into it. Uh, Scott Saunders, also with me. How is it going? Very well, thank you, Harry. Very, very well. Uh, hopefully, the listener could try and guess the voice uh, before we were introduced. <laughs> I'm sure they could. Those dulcet tones of Scott Saunders, mm-hmm. everyone. Everyone's got them on point. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about the general world landscape going into this one. George Bush was the USA president. I feel like I've said that at the start of every one of these uh, shows. Tony Blair was the prime minister in the UK. The euro became the official currency of the EU member countries. Will Young had the number one single in the UK with Light My Fire. And Spider-Man, the Tobey Maguire one, was the number one film in the UK. In terms of the football landscape... Real Madrid had beaten Bayer Leverkusen by two goals to one in the Champions League final. The game with that Zidane goal. Um, Feyenoord had beaten Borussia Dortmund 3-2 in the UEFA Cup final. Pierre van Hooydonk with a brace. And domestically, Arsenal had won the Premier League. Thierry Henry won the Golden Boot with 24 goals. And Ruud van Nistelrooy won the PFA Player of the Year. Robbery, by the way. I'm I'm (laughs) going to ask you that. (laughs) Juventus won Serie A. Inter led the league going into the final day, but lost 4-2 to Lazio and ended up finishing third. So a cracking end. That was a crazy one. Yeah, unbelievable. Cracking into that Serie A season. So we mentioned, Toby, that we were kids in this World Cup. I was 12 years old. Um, I remember trying to fit this World Cup in and around school. (laughs) What do you remember? Same. I was doing my GCSEs. Um, I was 14 going into the tournament. And I, we said before we came on air that the 98 World Cup was one of those ones that they wheeled a TV into our classroom so we could watch <laughs> England, Tunisia and the other group games. And I think it was the same thing that we weren't attending school every day because you get that kind of revision leave. Um, but most of the World Cup was, oh, we've got English, but 20 minutes in, the TV's being wheeled in and we're watching the World Cup. So, yeah, I enjoyed it, um, the tournament as a whole, and we'll obviously get into the detail of it. But football was so much more fun then. And we're going to touch on some of the amazing players that every country seemed to have at that time. I don't get that same buzz from international football at the moment, I must say. But Scott, when we were kids and, and this World Cup was going on, Toby mentions the TVs on wheels. That was a, a real common thing in sort of UK schools. Um, 
if that World Cup was now, in terms of how I like to consume a World Cup and the social side of it, I think I'd struggle with the morning games. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, it, it was such a fond memory back in Scotland. We're all the same age-ish, you know. I think w this, I, I, was, I remember being in science for one of the games, I think it might have been England versus Brazil, where the TV got wheeled in as well, even though it was in Wales, because that's the only bloody team that we had to, you know, support or hate or get yeah. behind. Were you shoehorned into being England fans during the World uh, Cup? There was, yeah, well, heady days Think of how much, uh, well, that's where the resentment comes from, isn't it? <laughs> um, but yeah, like, it must be very different nowadays. Um, obviously, the Qatar World Cup coming up is a friendly time for a UK audience, um, but the US World Cup will be a little bit later. I'm not really sure how people would deal with it nowadays. Maybe it'd just be all, if you're going to wheel in, a, instead of wheeling in a TV on a box uh, with like a shelf underneath it, you, everyone gets their smartphone out and watches uh, watches the latest with a slight delay. But I remember in 2002, I, the thing that jumps back at me is when I used to go play football over the park with the boys. And do you remember, like, this is the power of branding. I think it was Coca-Cola released the ring pulls and there was some you could win a prize underneath the ring pool or something like that and i think they released a vanilla version of coke at the time as well. i love vanilla coke by mm. the way if it's ice cold it is beautiful i've never tried i haven't had it since then but. have you had a coke float with ice cream yes so it tastes like that okay fair enough well, you know, never had one it. no never had one i'll, I'll bring you both a can of vanilla coke i next seem time. to remember fanta guava did you ever have that Ooh. i think that was around that world cup as well it, it was like a special edition flowing in and we we're like, oh my God, what is this flavor that we've never seen? And it's never returned since, but um, yeah, recommend it if you go abroad. Uh, going into the tournament, the favorites were Argentina. Italy were up there as well, alongside France, Brazil, Spain, many of the usual suspects. England went into this World Cup at 10 to 1 odds. Now, Sven-Goran Eriksson was the manager at the time, Toby, and obviously England had beaten Germany 5-1 in that famous game during the qualification campaign. This was very much England's golden generation. How do you remember kind of feeling or, or thinking about England's prospects ahead of the tournament? I think at that time I was always optimistic watching any England game because I just I didn't really understand the intricacies of football. I was just a 14-year-old kid thinking my country can win each and every game they go into. But on reflection, and as I got a little bit older, um, England were really well positioned going into that tournament. As you said, in Munich... September 2001 they tore Germany apart 5-1 and that was kind of a bit of a show of what they could do under Sven um, but I do remember that that's maybe the first time that the media was really piling on England and putting the pressure on that this is a crop of players who could really go far and they could deliver um, ultimately it didn't work out that way which we'll get into but the Spoilers. squad had the squad had so much talent <laughs> in it um, David Beckham for example at the very top of his game Michael Owen was that his peak? It probably was maybe just past it, which well, is I weird to say, I isn't it? Was his peak. Yeah. But that was right at the start. Peak, of his career, peak as an 18 year old, yeah. which is crazy to say, but he was still at the very top of his game going into that 2002 World Cup. And was that the, it was the year before he went to Real Madrid, wasn't it? So he was a wanted man at that point. Um, and he'd struck up quite a good partnership with Emil Heskey up front even though his international record would suggest he wasn't much of a, um, an addition to the England forward line. I remember he the was. stick that Emil Heskey <laughs> used to get. Why is Emil Heskey playing? But you're right, he used to bring the best out of the players around him with the kind of unselfish work that he used to do. Yeah, absolutely. They had pulled goals in midfield as well. 
Um, talents like Joe Cole coming through as well at West Ham. It was an exciting time to be an England fan, and I know I was optimistic that they could go far. Um, but there are other good teams in that tournament. We've already said the amount of good players that were on show, Italy, France, Germany, Brazil, all of their squads were stacked with amazing players that we look back on now and think, Christ, they're all in the same team. Um, so England were one of many teams who felt they could probably do quite well. If we jump into the group stages, Scott, um, Group A sprung up a few surprises. Uh, the French World Cup and European uh, Championship holders went out in the groups, crashed out famously, and there was a, a famous victory for Senegal who managed to progress through the group. Uh, they beat France by a goal to nil, and it was Papa Bouba Diop uh, with the famous winning goal. Scott, I mean, first of all, not only France, but Uruguay flopped in this group as well because they really on paper should have gone through. They didn't. But kind of what do you remember of that shock? Was it the biggest shock in World Cup? I, it, for me, it was actually at that point, I think, because obviously we'd seen France. And this was just when I was... Like my first tournament, we always play this game. Like, when was your the first tournament you remember? Mine was Euro '96. I'm, I'm of that age, and then obviously I saw that play out, and I was very into it. But then France took over. '98, they won, didn't play amazing, but you know they 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 got there in the end. And in 2000, uh, they won the Euro. So I think it, you know with a, a crop of players that everybody knew were just incredible. With Zinedine Zidane, who was probably my favourite player. I remember at this World Cup, I had that Zidane shirt. Uh, it had like a weird netting over the top of it, I want to say. And that's what the Adidas models were like back then. Uh, but it, it was, I bought it on holiday. Uh, and I loved France. I loved Zidane, uh, you know, as well as Italy, because as I touch on through this series, Wales weren't at any tournaments. Uh, <laughs> so I had to pick a team. Uh, Zidane was obviously the one and I think you just went into this because it was like such an important like opening round of games and I think this was quite early on if even if it might have even been the first game of the tournament uh, and it just I remember the goal going in and I remember France kind of limping and ended up losing and I was like what have I just seen I'm really confused by that France are meant to be good and they didn't win I, I couldn't couldn't get my head around it. Well, they were missing Zidane for the first two games. I think he was in the squad, but he was out injured. And but they had you, more than that. Yeah, but as you said, you they know? went behind. And I think psychologically, despite their success over the past four years, not having Zidane in the team was maybe a bit of a shock to the system. They had that weight of expectation, similar to what Spain had in later years, um, to get back into it. And Senegal, that was their first major tournament as well. So it was incredible to see them not only take the lead, but then hold on to win the game and it also birthed the careers of so many players yeah, in that team sure. to then move to the Premier League. We also have to take into consideration that with the French team that they're always they're always just a kind of one incident away from a crisis and an issue and we've seen that in other World Cups but you know maybe that kind of contributed the fact that it always is so volatile in that camp to them maybe not being able to recover or not being able to get by without Zinedine Zidane. Uh, Group B was pretty straightforward. Spain and Paraguay, the two sides that you'd expect to go through in that one, and they did. Group C was interesting. Um, Brazil obviously topped that group. They had a couple of really uh, interesting ding-dongs throughout this tournament with Turkey, who were a surprise uh, for a lot of people. But Scott, that Brazilian front three, Ronaldo, Rivaldo, Ronaldinho. But this wow. was before Ronaldinho was Ronaldinho, yep. wasn't it? Because I remember, I think he joined PSG in... 
I can't remember exactly when it was. Did I say 2001? It was because I remember yeah. playing Championship Manager. Two th- <laughs> it might have been 2001 yeah. and he was still at Gremio and he was the player that you would always want that's, to go and sign. That's the one. Yeah. So he'd not really become Ronaldinho yet, but obviously he scored against England later, later in the tournament with that that free kick and that's when he kind of this was the tournament where he was announced to the world in a sense but he wasn't you think of that everyone of this generation seen seen that Ronaldinho season or period of time where he spent at Barcelona he wasn't that player then he was a little bit patchy playing for PSG who were obviously not the PSG that you see today in terms of profile quality of players they kind of had a few sprinklings of quality here and there and I, I was actually quite surprised that he actually went to PSG in the first place but to see him in a team like that, and you look back at the names now with Ronaldo and the redemption story of, you know, four years before the injuries that he'd had as well, there was obviously a lot of doubt around, you know, how he could operate and he bounced back unbelievably. Rivaldo there, who'd done bits in previous years as well. So you can look back on it now and say, wow, what a team that was. But I don't think it was going into it. There was doubts over Ronaldo. Ronaldinho wasn't exactly the Ronaldinho that we spoke about, that we know. And this was the kind of proving ground, the first proving ground before they went on to better things. Well, they also had a decent defence as well. And that was the tournament when Marcos announced himself as a top-class goalkeeper. They had Cafu and Roberto Carlos as fullbacks. Rocco Jr., do you remember him? Mm-hmm. was a, a wanted commodity. He was very much an up-and-coming star um, for Brazil at that time. I think he had Ed Milson next to him at centre-back. They were a solid unit. Um, and as you say, Ronaldinho wasn't the flair player yet that he proved to be. And Rivaldo and Ronaldo were very much the superstars of that team. But they were just so exciting to watch. I think we, as a kid, you just associated Brazil with flair. And that team had flair yeah. all over it. It absolutely did. I mean, I was just looking at the team that played in the semi-final of this tournament a little bit later on. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, some of the players there already. Cafu was in that team. Lucio went on to be uh, a really top defender. Roberto Carlos, everybody loved Roberto Carlos, Gilberto Silva. Um, you know, so there was a lot of quality Cleverson. in that side. Cleverson, yeah. Man United's greatest ever player. And and you look at the bench, even people like Dida were on the bench. Like I always like the name Van Petter as well. Yeah. I don't know why. Just uh, <laughs> really stuck out for me. Quite definitive, uh, you know. Kaka. Kaka was in Goodness there. Goodness me. Kaka was an unused sub in that semi final. So. There was quality there, but I, I totally take on the point about Ronaldinho. This wasn't. This was still an audacious Ronaldinho, one yeah. that would try ridiculous things, as England found out later in the tournament, but not at the same level in terms of what he was delivering after that. Do you remember the Rivaldo dive as well oh, in their game with Turkey? Absolutely. <laughs> Ball smacking him on the knee. It was the first time I remember that. Oh, he's play acting. He's trying to get him. You don't really associate dirty tactics, only because you, apart from when the dive button came in on This Is Football 2002, which we've all uh, spoken about um, in our video game history. But yeah, that was funny, wasn't it? It was indeed. Uh, taking it on to Group D. So Brazil and Turkey progressed from Group C. Group D, South Korea won it. Now the host nation, there was a lot of fanfare around South Korea. Obviously, they were at home. Um, the crowds were unbelievable. Uh, what did you sort of think about South Korea, Toby, going into the tournament? Because I didn't have very high hopes for them whatsoever, but they, they went pretty far. They had a good competition. They had a very experienced manager in Gus Hiddink sort of at the helm. This was a side that people recognised quite quickly, uh, quite early on in the tournament, that they needed to take seriously. Truth be told, going into the tournament, I didn't know anything 
about South Korea apart from Gus Hiddink as their manager. Um, but we soon quickly learned about Park Ji Sung. Ahn Young Hwan, who was, sure, meant we'll to, yeah, was meant to move to Perugia and then that all went belly up for reasons we'll get into. He was kind of the star of that team. He was an up and coming attacking midfielder. Um, I think he was 23 or 24. So he was kind of at his peak. And as you say, it was football fandom. South Korea, the atmospheres there were incredible. The same for Japan um, for their group stage games. And whenever you have a, an effervescent, boisterous crowd like that behind you, it always lifts uh, the performances of your players. And look, they were paired together with the US and a Portugal team who actually had some of their greatest ever players in it. Luis Figo, Rui Costa, Vita Bayer in goal. But they couldn't cope with the expectation. And I would just, just say the occasion got to them in South Korea rose to it rather than capitulating under the pressure. They got, obviously, uh, a winning goal, South Korea, against Portugal that took them through. Uh, Park Ji Sung, who went on to play, of course, uh, for Manchester United with the big goal there. But also in that group, USA stunned a few people when they beat Portugal by three goals to two as well. That was the big thing for me. You look at that team, Vitor Bahia, Rui Costa, just... Luis Figo, obviously, everybody knows that Luis Figo was one of the best players in the world for a number of years before that tournament. And I liked Rui Costa. I, I like a, a classic the down number socks. 10, the rolled down mm. socks. So like, uh, it's just obviously oozing class, but not your kind of player of today that you, you expect to be pressing everyone. It's more, more of your luxury player, but just can absolutely make a difference. And those players flourished in, in those times. Uh, you struggle to think of players nowadays who get away with that without having the hard work to back it up. I mean, Ronald, like not Ronald, Ronaldinho, Rui Costa's running stats. If you're listening to this, if you want to dig them up, they might be amazing. <laughs> did but it, they, did just, they even this is what that, I remember. Right? You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You could have, you can afford to get away in the modern game with one luxury player kind of floating in that number ten and maybe drifting out to a channel and not doing too much defensively. Back then, you would have two or three players, and it was all it was carnage in terms of. Six on six, basically, in defensive and attacking situations. And Portugal were one of those teams that just kind of thought, well, we'll score more than you. Uh, moving on to Group E, Germany won Group E, as you'd expect. Republic of Ireland went through alongside them. Uh, Germany with that 8-0 Saudi Arabia win. Uh, third biggest win in World Cup history, that behind Yugoslavia's 9-0 win over Zaire in 1974 and Hungary's 9-0 win over South Korea in 1954. Uh, of course, Hungary had also beaten El Salvador 10-1, if you want to go further back uh, to 1954 as well. But the big story in this group, I guess, from a kind of British perspective, home nation perspective, is the Roy Keane and Mick McCarthy falling out. I mean, it's you know, it's not surprising, is it, Toby, to hear of Roy Keane falling out with someone in the way he did? But that just all exploded, didn't it? At a time where... You felt that they needed him. They they ended up doing okay anyway, but yeah. it, it, you, you just felt like it had the potential to derail them. He was the star name in that team. They had the likes of Robbie Keane up front, who was obviously a fantastic player, but Roy Keane was the one that everybody looked to for inspiration. He'd been Manchester United's captain, successful captain for approaching a decade. Um, and just the manner of the falling out. He was out walking his dog, wasn't he? That's Roy the thing Keane, I remember right? about it. Like, yeah, just that clip of him yeah. walking around and the media kind of hounding him for comment. He didn't say anything, but he was completely unperturbed by the whole thing, wasn't he? Like, right, I don't care. Um, and you thought it would derail Ireland's campaign, but actually it did the opposite. It kind of brought them together a little bit more. Um, 
And I remember that goal that Robbie Keane scored against Germany in injury time, that long diagonal ball that was flicked on by Niall Quinn. Um, Niall Quinn won. And Robbie Keane got onto it, smashed it into the top corner and then brought out his trademark celebration. But it was the the cauldron of Ireland fans that were behind the goal as well. Um, our colleague Jack Gallagher remembers it fondly. He's put in the notes, Jack Gallagher, best celebration ever. I, I can't ever give Robbie Keane's half-assed attempt that some sort of acrobatics as as a best celebration ever. I can't do it. It's it's not flip. It's not anything like that. It's like a roly poly that like, Jack's just switched off the podcast. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's like a roly poly that people that can't do a flip do. That's how I see it. <laughs> Is that harsh? <laughs> no, I get where you're coming from, but like like Toby said, Ireland with the the nice story of the tournament from you know a perspective of like where we are. It's especially for like you know someone like me, perhaps for the Scots as well. If there's a, I'm sure that the Scots hopefully and the Irish will be supporting Wales in the Wales versus England group <laughs> in Qatar. Uh, just because we all kind of get behind. If there's one of us there, you know, it's like, come on, get behind instead of England. Uh, but yeah, uh, Ireland. It was a it was a lovely story, lovely goal from Robbie Keane as well. One of, I one of the most iconic moments I would think in Irish football history, especially over the last few years. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Group F involved England. Uh, they went through in second place along with Sweden who topped the group. Argentina missing out and they were the pre-tournament favourites and obviously they came up against a David Beckham who was desperate to redeem himself, Toby. This was the absolute group of death for England. You had Argentina who were the favourites, as you say, um, but they were the quote number two seeds because um, that was their world ranking at the time. England were eight, Sweden were 12, and Nigeria were 18. It was a horrible group to be in. Um, and Sweden were an exceptionally good team back then. Mm -hmm. They had a lot of hard-working players, and in their game against England, England's first group game was a one-all draw with Sweden. Sweden played England off the park. England took the lead in that game through Sol Campbell, but their performance level was pretty dire, truth be told, and they didn't really create anything in that game. And Sweden should have won that. Um, were it not for two or three saves from David Seaman, they would have done. But Argentina, look, England were desperate to avenge what had happened four years previously. David Beckham in particular wanted to avenge what he had done personally. And it was a better performance from England. Um, do you remember it was Mauricio Pochettino yep. who conceded the penalty for Argentina, which Beck slammed down the middle, which back then... With long hair? Uh, I want to no, say. didn't I? Didn't he have... He'd shaved his head in 2001. Had he? Yeah, because okay. he scored that Greece free kick to get England to the World yeah. Cup. I think his hair had stopped. No, I was talking about Poch, sorry. Oh, oh, sorry, yes. No, Poch did have long hair. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and pulled it off well, I must say. But England kind of outplayed them on that occasion. Argentina just didn't recover. I think the final group games, Argentina needed to beat Sweden and hope that Nigeria did England a favour. And they were both board draws. Um, and again, Argentina didn't really perform against Sweden and ultimately they crashed out the tournament. Group G saw Italy squeeze through alongside Mexico. We'll touch on Italy in a moment because they were one of the big stories of the round of 16. Um, and then Group H ended with Japan finishing top of the pile, co-host of the tournament, of course, uh, led by Hidetoshi Nakata. Remember him, Scott? I very much do, yeah. Uh massively high profile as well wasn't he massively Ma even and even not over here that good in my opinion really yeah, he was all right he was good but his profile was way beyond his capabilities i think yeah uh he was you know he, 
I, I do. I watched a lot of Italian football at the time. I think he played for Parma as well. Yeah, uh, And he, he was the big name from Japanese football. I was I was kind of expecting him to be the the one to carry them on the shoulders. I played for Roma as well, was it? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I had known him, but obviously we would be getting introduced to more Japanese players over the course of that competition as well. Uh, but iconic. I guess uh, you're probably right. Now that I'm now that I'm thinking about it, perhaps not as good as he was made out to be. Yeah, sometimes you get that, don't you, Toby? Where a player's like a god in their own country, but everywhere else is kind of looking on and going, "You're all right." But yeah, he was he was kind of the face of the country, really, wasn't he? Or the mm. face of the tournament, at the very least. And again, I'm going to bring it back to Championship Manager. That's how I knew about him. <laughs> yep. because he was really, really good on the game. Um, so again, I thought I'm going to watch out for him to see whether or not my £7 million investment is actually good in real life. But um, again, Japan kind of elevated their performances, didn't they, in the group stages. Um, really, really um, packed full of energy. The crowd was full of life. Um, and back then, Belgium weren't the force that they are now. Yeah, absolutely. And the other two teams in their group, Russia and Tunisia, on the surface, that was quite an easy group, or it was a, a very wide open group at the very least. So Japan's prospects of getting through were good. Um, and they took advantage of being at home. Do you remember the Sapporo Dome, the Japanese stadium where the pitch used to come out and then go back in? That was like the first of its kind, wasn't it? I remember that being a big story at the time. Uh, round of 16, Germany uh, with a narrow win over Paraguay, Oliver Neuville. Well, th these are, there's some real throwback names here. Uh, with an 88th minute winner to put them through. And Denmark took on England. But England made light work of them, Toby, and uh, your man, Emil Heskey, got himself on the score. Played really well. Him and Michael Owen together looked really dangerous in that game. And it was England's fourth game of the tournament. They'd been rubbish in the first game. Good against Argentina, rubbish against Nigeria, and then good again. So as a fan, you weren't really sure what you were going to get at this point, but it was a quick start from England. They took the lead through that. Rio Ferdinand's kind of deflected header from a corner where Thomas Sorensen had an absolute mare. Um, and then he made another error for, I think it was the third goal, which was Heskey's, which was a typical Emil Heskey finish straight down the middle. But Sorensen somehow <laughs> dived over the ball. Um, and England were three up by half time, and the Danes weren't the team then that they are now. Um, and England cruised through, and I think that's why expectation was suddenly on the rise again ahead of the quarterfinal. Uh, talking about uh, the remainder of the round of 16, Senegal, Scott, continued to surprise people. They beat Sweden after extra time. Omri Kamara uh, with the winning goal. Remember, there's some cracking names in this. Um, and of course, uh, El Hajj Juf um, and quite a few plaudits. And in the end, got his move, as Toby alluded to earlier. Lots of Senegalese players were picked up after this competition. Yeah, you just named two players there, Oliver Neuville and El Hajj Juf, who... I'm not particularly fond of. I think Oliver Neuville was part of that Bayer Leverkusen team, wasn't he? Yep, that's right. And United have been knocked out <laughs> by Bayer Leverkusen of the Champions League in, I think it was the semi, I think it was the semi-final actually, or either the semi or the quarter-final. And I remember Diego Forlan having an effort clear off the line in the later stages of that game. But Oliver Neuville was just one of those players that for, it just irrationally irritated me for some reason. <laughs> Uh, probably because I, you know, Bayer Leverkusen had uh, been doing really well, but you know when you, you you're young and he, your team comes up against them, and El Hajj Juf as well, you know, 
he just since he went to Liverpool afterwards. I, th- I actually think I wanted him at United after this this World Cup, but he ended up on the other side, and uh, yeah, not too fond of him either in the nicest possible way. I don't think anyone was too fond of El Hadjouf, not even the oh, people. Well, Liverpool that... fans weren't after a yeah. year of having him <laughs> exactly. there because um, it didn't work out at all, did it? Uh, Spain took on Ireland. Ireland heartbreak in the end because they were knocked out uh, on penalties, but they did miss a penalty in normal time. And they had so much of this game, 55% possession, 18 shots at goal. Um, Robbie Keane scored a 90th minute penalty to send them through to extra time. So they got a couple of penalties in normal time, but then when the shootout came along, Toby, it just didn't happen for them. Yeah, they missed three of their five spot kicks and I think Mendieta was the the player for Spain who scored the winning penalty. Um, Heartbreaking for Ireland because they had more of the game. As you said, they had more of the ball. Um, Two penalties awarded in normal time. That's one of the things that stands out actually about this tournament. The amount of penalties that were given, the amount of red cards that were given in the tournament as well. I think it was 17, which is the most that there's ever been in tournament history. And we're going to get on to refereeing controversy, I'm sure, but... That just kind of said everything about the officiating um, that Ireland were given to during the game. I don't think they were both Stonewall, um, from what I recall. I think one was, and I think one was a little bit dubious, but it was Matt Holland um, who missed it. Not sure he's in Jack's uh, good books. He doesn't get a Christmas card from him every year. But (laughs) look, Spain had some good players in that team as well. Morientes, Raul was still knocking around up front. They were dangerous. They weren't the force they would they were to be in the future but they were still a very good team this is funny because we, we're talking about officiating and we're what 20 years down I was line, just going to say that and it's still it just as shit the as it was then <laughs> um, Mexico nil USA 2 USA were quietly very good in this competition like people don't outside of USA I'm assuming don't really talk about them but they pulled they got through a group that I don't think many people thought they would get through and then they beat a Mexican side who I guess always lose at this stage of the tournament. Scott. Yeah, I can imagine as well, not um, do work with the US team at the moment. I can imagine just how much of a big deal that was for both teams at the time as well. Yeah. Uh, like for us, it probably passes by as just another game. But you look at the rivalry that is there, how obviously two countries bordering each other, like like for example, our, our US editor Lizzie is based in the US but considers herself Mexican is Mexican and <laughs> it's just a weird little dynamic there uh, weird rivalries and it'd be really interesting to see back then how that kind of game plays out uh, but big win for the US Indeed, uh, Brazil beat Belgium by two goals to nil, Rivaldo and Ronaldo with the goals and Japan were knocked out by Turkey who had a, a really good tournament now, I grew up in North London so I remember the celebrations on the street every time Turkey progressed. Every time they went through a round or won a, a game, the area that I was living in would be flooded with Turkey supporters out celebrating and they're absolutely entitled to because this was a really big deal. Um, but yeah, that, that, that always sticks in my memory. But the big game in this round, the game that produced the biggest shock, the game that sent shockwaves, I guess, through sort of everyone was the South Korea-Italy game in which South Korea progressed. Now, Italy had been pretty poor in the tournament up until this point. If we go back to the group stage, they got one win, one draw and one defeat. So they just about made it by the skin of their teeth. And that was despite having players like Maldini, Totti, Vieri, Buffon, Nesta, Del Piero, etc., etc. 
Vieri had scored three of their four goals up until that point. So they were heavily, heavily reliant on them, on him, I beg your pardon. But Toby, what do you remember of this game and the controversy around it? Because there was a lot. There was a lot. Um, Italy, I remember taking the lead through Vieri, who also missed a glut of chances. He probably should have had four or five um, during the game. But Francesco Totti was sent off late on for what you would say was a questionable second yellow card for alleged diving. If you looked at the replay and in the age of VAR, that, that wouldn't have been the case. Um, Damiano Tomasi had a goal, golden goal, ruled out for offside, which wasn't offside. It wasn't even close as well. It was a good couple of yards onside. Um, and I think the referee of that game had history as well for being or alleged to be involved in corruption um, back in Ecuador. And he was suspended, I think, later in that year for sort of 20 matches for his involvement in timekeeping he basically (laughs) ended the game early um but in this particular game south korea really roughed italy up and italy didn't get any free kicks i didn't really get any decisions in that game and i think italy just felt so hard done by um by full time and rightly so um south korea had played their way back into the game and managed to get the equalizer late on it was a, a panucci mistake from memory but yeah, Italy would have won that game had the officiating or had the official done his job properly. Just to kind of read um, Byron Moreno, the referee's kind of rap sheet. Um, he was suspended for 20 matches in September 20, uh, 2002, I beg your pardon, for timekeeping errors in an Ecuadorian league game and then retired in 2003. He was also arrested in 2010 for smuggling six kilos of heroin into uh, another country so this was a guy that was questionable at best (laughs) Uh, and knowing how passionate italian football fans are scott this must have been really difficult to get past. well you can see from the reaction of luciano Cauchi. (laughs) there's a quote here uh you know yeah What's he said there? So he I was have the no intention of playing a salary to someone who's ruined Italian football. If, if if that isn't a quote there that summarizes the emotion around Italian football and how irrational someone can be, we're talking An Jung Juan here. So this is yeah. So for context, um, Luciano Galci was the Perugia owner, and An Jung Juan played for Perugia. And after this, he said. I have no intention of paying a salary to someone who has ruined Italian football because it was indeed him that scored the, the winning goal. I mean, that's nuts, isn't Ru- it? Ruined his career, didn't it? We didn't really see anything of Arne after that. Was kind of, that was the peak, was him scoring that goal to knock Italy out. And then I think they went through like a legal dispute for months and his career just kind of stalled from then. He was only, as I touched on earlier, I think he was 24, 25 maybe max. Um but that just kind of stopped all of the momentum that he generated in that tournament. And yeah, just funny. You look back on it, it's a funny thing to do. (laughs) It's one of those things, yeah, when you're looking from the outside, uh, you can uh, can see the funny side of it, I guess. Uh, Quarterfinals, England took on Brazil. Um, Good game this. Uh, Owen opened the scoring for England, capitalising on a mistake from Lucio. Rivaldo levelled in the 45th minute. But then, of course, there was the Ronaldinho goal. Scott, was David Seaman to blame for this? I'm just going to go back, actually, before, before that. That Michael Owen goal and my feeling towards that at the time. Because I think people were expecting Brazil to win. And England were getting that, like, excitement. You know, they'd just beaten Denmark, right? 
in the in the round before, and it was a little bit of a surprise. I remember the Michael Owen finish as well. Like, I thought, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> England can't beat Brazil. Please no. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it just all turned. Uh, the goal. We'll jump forward a little bit to the goal from Ronaldinho. It's always a mystery, and how, how did that make you feel as an Arsenal fan, Harry? Because it was such an audacious attempt. Was it ever cleared up if it was an attempt or whether it was flipped? I'm not convinced, regardless of what anybody says, that Ronaldinho meant that. I, 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 don't, I don't see how you could intend to do that in that position and that be in your right mind. Yeah, ag- agreed. But as you alluded to earlier on, this wasn't the Ronaldinho that we all became accustomed to later on or we all expected to do outrageous things. This was, maybe he had it in him, not saying that he didn't, but I just think from that angle and the way the ball drops in, it's not a strike towards goal, is it? It's looping. I don't think he's, I don't think he's intended to do that. But as an Arsenal fan, watching David Seaman, now David Seaman had a history of getting done from long distances and, and I was a little bit kind of like, here we go again, should he have saved it? But it's such a freak goal. And of course, at every World Cup, the English press have to have someone to blame. They need a scapegoat. Absolutely, they need a scapegoat. But you touched on it, Scott. Brazil were heavy favourites to win this game. So when England did take the lead, I remember sitting in that classroom, everybody going mad. But there was still a feeling, even as a kid, that this is a bit too good to be true. And Rivaldo's goal came on the stroke of half-time and that Ronaldinho free-kick was not too long into the second half and that just kind of knocked the wind out of mm-hmm. England's sails. Um, good game though, as you say, it was very competitive, particularly after Ronaldinho then saw Reds, didn't he, yeah. for a challenge that it wasn't... On mad. Danny Mills. Yeah, of all <laughs> Can you people? imagine what Danny Mills would say about that nowadays <laughs> if he was analysing it? Just going back to the point around whether Ronaldinho uh, meant the goal, Jack's put the quote from Ronaldinho. Uh, given to FIFA. He said, when I hit the ball, I wanted to shoot for goal, but maybe not exactly where the ball ended up. If I'm being totally honest, I was aiming for the other side of the net. But you can't say it was a fluke because I was aware of the keeper's position and went for the shot at goal. I'll pull the go. other one. I, pull the know, other one. Do you know what? I kind of believe him to an extent because it was, if it was a cross, it was a terrible cross because <laughs> it was nowhere near any of the players who were attacking the ball from deep. And as you say, David Seaman had a history for it. Maybe that was the start of, or the birth of Ronaldinho's confidence, his swagger, maybe his arrogance to go for goal from there. He obviously didn't mean to put it postmark where he did. Um, and he wouldn't be able to do that again if he tried a hundred times. But I think deep down something inside him probably did think, I'll put it in an area and that area is going to kind of be around just dropping under the crossbar and we'll see what happens. Do you think I'm being harsh in saying that David Seaman had a problem with that? Because obviously there was the goal scored by Naeem for Real Zaragoza against Arsenal in the early 90s, which was from a ridiculous distance. Again, the element of surprise is what ultimately beats him. There were just... I adore David Seaman and maybe I'm being a little bit harsh and maybe just going along with a general narrative, but there was something about if you put the ball just underneath the crossbar he could struggle with it. Remember the Ryan Giggs goal yeah. in the FA Cup semi-final where he gets to that angle and, and you're watching David Seaman and you're thinking, you've leant back too yeah, soon. Yeah, just stand. You've, you've yeah. opened the space that wasn't there. And I wonder if, you know, maybe Ronaldinho had looked at that or 
you know, maybe I'm giving him too much credit now. I don't know. Maybe I've gone the other way. But David Seaman had a great reputation as a shot stopper. Yeah, he was an unbelievable career, keeper. But yeah. the other thing to note is that he was very much at the end of his career back then. His feet were not moving as quickly as they would have done in his prime. What was he, 37? Ponytail weighing him down. Um, yeah. <laughs> so look, he wasn't the to- he wasn't in his prime. Is basically what I'm trying to say. Um, but he did have a bit of a reputation, I think, for if you put balls in the box and you put pressure on him, he might drop one or two. A bit of a theme for England goalkeepers over the years, um, and certainly a notion that Seaman definitely contributed to. Germany defeated the USA by a goal to nil uh, in their knockout game. Um, Michael Ballack with the winner. USA were really good on the day. Uh, Landon Donovan denied twice by brilliant saves from Oliver Kahn, but it wasn't to be uh, for the USA. And then, of course, Spain come up against South Korea, the host nation. Again, South Korea squeezed through, this time on penalties. But similarly, Toby, to the Italy game, there was a lot of crazy refereeing decisions here. Two disallowed goals. Uh, The first was for an alleged push. The second uh, was when the linesman had judged the ball to have gone out of play. This was, again, another game where people started to question what the hell was going on. Yeah, this was um, Spain playing well. They were the better team during that game, but it was the refereeing scandal taken to another level. We thought that Italy didn't get any decisions against South Korea. This was worse. Spain genuinely didn't get anything from the referee throughout those 90 minutes and even into extra time. And the Morientes goal that was ruled out late on for the ball allegedly going out for a goal kick. Again, it wasn't even close. Um, So Spain went absolutely mental, as you'd expect, after losing in the shootout. Um, I think we've got a quote, haven't we, that Ivan Helguera... Yeah, Ivan Helguera said, uh, what happened there was robbery. Everyone saw two perfectly good goals. If Spain didn't win, it's because they didn't want us to win. I feel terrible about this game. Scott, looking back on it now, I know we'll never really know. But do you think there was something in this conspiracy talk? Do you think there was a desire to give one of the host nations a bit of a helping hand to keep the tournament alive in that sense and Harry, keep it you're interesting? Me on the spot, I am. Yeah. I am. I know that there was a little bit of feeling at the time around it. That that is what the the big takeaway was. But I'm, I will be speculating <laughs> if if I were to say spoken like a proper way, politician. Uh, I know that's what we do here <laughs> with a little bit more daring than perhaps other media but I think that's a little bit too far for me as well to do. Do, do you remember one of the other things in that shootout Joaquin was the player who missed the decisive penalty the keeper was literally standing on the six yard line by the time he struck the penalty because Joaquin did that kind of stutter and fake and the angle had closed down so much by the time he took the penalty that it's no surprise it was saved, but back then they didn't really monitor keepers coming off their line, did they? It Which was one in of the those, modern game yeah. wouldn't be standard for. It was one of those things that was known as a rule but never really enforced. Uh, Turkey also got through um, to the semi-finals, uh, beating Senegal by a goal to nil after extra time. Ilhan Manis uh, with the goal there, and then of course the semi-finals. South Korea finally got getting knocked out. Uh, by a really strong German side uh, with Michael Ballack at the forefront. So obviously, Toby, Michael Ballack was the hero uh, for Germany, getting the, the decisive goal in the end. But it was a, a bit of sweet night for him, wasn't it? Because he was also booked and then had to miss the final. Yeah, scored the goal, got Germany through to the final, but as you say, was then ruled out of it. Um, and he had a bit of a reputation, didn't he, as a nearly man. He'd been the runner-up at a World Cup previously. 
two Champions Leagues, um, had got to the final and hadn't been successful, but he was widely regarded as one of the most talented midfielders of that German generation. Um, and he's a player that you look back on that Germany team now, he was the best player they had by a mile. And they didn't have him for the final, which I think he's spoken about that moment later in his career, um, saying that it knocked him, it hurt him, that he didn't have the ability to play against Brazil. And I think there was a feeling in Germany that as good as Brazil were, they were potentially there for the taking in that final. And if Balak had been playing, the outcome might have been... I'm not going to go too much further into that, but yeah, <laughs> I think you know where I'm going with it. I think I get where you're going with it, yeah. Uh, let's go on then to the final. Brazil versus Germany. And um, Scott, Ronaldo writing the wrongs of 1998. Yeah, it was a... We touched on it in the 98 episode about all of the mystery, I guess was the word, around why he was going to miss the final and then turned up but really didn't turn up. Uh, obviously, the thing that I think most people remember about this was, you know, his haircut, <laughs> uh, which was just... Can you call it haircut? Does it fall into the haircut category? Or is it just a, a nonsense? It's it's a really interesting way that he's answered it as well. And the reason why he, you know, sported this haircut. I'm, I'm doing using like grab quotes on my fingers here. Um, but it was such a pure story to see Ronaldo like coming back because he'd had troubles with injuries. He, you know, and to know that he was the player who could bounce back and he wasn't, he wasn't ever the same player that we saw in the 90s, was he? because of the injuries. But the fact that he did bounce back and in a little bit of a different style, but still deliver the goods. I think it was a really nice story for me. For me as a fan anyway, I, I know that I that was what I wanted to happen, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah I was very much the same. I, I remember watching that final thinking, I really want Brazil to win and I want Ronaldo to be the star act. Um, he, he pounced, the first goal was him pouncing on Oliver Kahn, making a mistake. I don't yeah. think I'd ever seen mm. Oliver Kahn make a mistake. And Germany in that tournament had only conceded one goal prior to the final. So they were defensively very sound. Um, and for that first hour, it was a relatively even contest. But Khan made the mistake. Ronaldo had added that kind of poaching element to his game. He didn't rely on it when he was the player that he was in the 90s. But he now had more of a, a more rounded game, so to speak. Um, and even the second goal that he scored was a simple touch. But he killed the ball dead, spun, and then just stroked it into the corner just passed it with ease and Oliver Kahn he wasn't close to it it was right in the corner and it was as Scott said a redemption story for Ronaldo and it was just the result that I think the majority of the football world wanted to see Scott mentioned that the kind of Ronaldo haircut story was was quite a nice one and, and one that you know he remembers fondly for maybe our younger listeners who don't necessarily remember uh, what the reason was. This is what Ronaldo said on the haircut. He said, I had an injury in my leg and everybody was talking about that. I decided to cut my hair and leave the small thing there. He describes it as a thing. I come to training and everybody saw me with bad hair. Everybody was talking about the hair and then forgot about my injury and I could stay more calm and relaxed and focused on my training. I'm not proud about the hair itself because it was pretty strange. Yeah, you can say that again. But it was a good way to change the subject. So, I guess in a weird way, he used it as a kind of coping mechanism for the fact that he was going through probably quite a bit of anxiety around whether or not he'd be fit, whether he'd be able to kind of stay at his level and, and whether or not he'd be letting his teammates down as well, who obviously relied on him quite heavily. 
Um, Toby also mentioned Olivia, uh, Oliver Kahn. Olivia Kahn. Oliver Kahn. Um, he was brilliant throughout the tournament. So to make a mistake in the final must have been difficult for him to get past. Very uncharacteristic for him as well. Oliver Kahn's reputation was built on the fact that he didn't make mistakes. He was an ogre of a goalkeeper, so to speak. That's, spread him That's a really good word. Yeah. I was just yeah. going to say, I, I was actually quite scared of him. He's, yeah, <laughs> he was frightening, but he spread himself so big um, that when you were through one-on-one on with him, it'd be interesting to know what Khan's career stats were in regards to one-on-ones because he did appear to cover all of the goal, but for him to make a mistake on such a big occasion, he was devastated as well. I remember the camera panning to him after a couple of minutes had gone by. He knew that that was probably a turning moment in that game and that Germany were going to find it difficult to unlock the door without Michael Ballack in midfield. Indeed. Uh, Where does this Brazilian team rank in terms of the greatest of all time, Scott, when we're talking about World Cups? In your mind, anyway, we're not going to talk about the 70s and we don't remember that. In your lifetime, in terms of World Cup winning teams, where does this Brazil side rank? It's got to be up there, to be honest, because we we say about... um, Coming up in this series, we talk about and all around this time with with the tournament coming up now. How many teams can you really think of that played to their absolute maximum with a star quality group of players who were just like the levels of Ronaldo, Ronaldinho, and Rivaldo, and getting over the line, getting the job done? It's usually quite you know grim. Uh, but I think this, this team, in terms of the players that they had, the full bats that they had, the icons that they had all delivered all across the pitch, they have to be right up there for me. I, I mean, I'd be hard-pressed to say one right off the top of my head. But in terms of like the World Cups that I've seen in my lifetime, it's probably top two, I would say. They were up there for me in terms of being entertainers. Yeah. And I place quite a bit of value on that because you t- talk about some of the other teams... You know, and you'll hear in some of the other episodes, we talk about teams being really efficient and kind of grinding out results and working their way towards the final and then doing enough to get over the line. But for me, entertainment is a big part of it. So this might be the best World Cup team I've seen. Yeah, same as Scott. I think in my lifetime, this was the team that had the star power across many areas of the team. Um, You look at Spain in 2010, when they were so well-rounded, they had that midfield of dreams where they could call about seven or eight players on who are of the same kind of calibre. But that was a very different team to this Brazil. They were good at everything. Brazil weren't necessarily good at everything, but they were great at some things. And players like Ronaldo, just in a different league. He's one of the greatest players of all time, if you ask me. Certainly one of the greatest strikers of all time. Um, And I look back on that tournament and outside of the England memories... Brazil is the only thing that really stands out for me. And I think that says everything about them as a team and what they were able to achieve in that year. Brilliant stuff, guys. uh, Thank you so much, Toby. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. Uh, Make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast feed so that you can pick up uh, the upcoming episodes. We look ahead. We look back on, I should say, all the World Cups um, in the last few years uh, that we remember anyway. Uh, building up towards the 2022 tournament, which is just around the corner. Uh, We'll be back with more very, very soon. Make sure you stay tuned. Until then, take care.